0: This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Good morning, or good evening, Light Church. I'm here now. So I would say you have an amazing pastor. Uh, Benji is just such a great guy. And uh, I want to let you know also that what you have going here is really special. The average size of a church in America is 80. Um, and this is a church that's a year old, already has three gatherings. Look at this place. God is up to something. And so we started a church, and within a year and a half, we had five gatherings. It was crazy, wild, amazing, but that isn't the norm. And so don't take that for granted. Be encouraged um, and be invested in what God is doing here because it is really, really unique. Well, I, um, I am actually originally uh, from Eugene, Oregon, uh, and uh, I was there for 10 years. Uh, I planted a church called Ecclesia. It was incredible. We were able to reach a ton of college students and young people in the college town uh, where the University of Oregon is. And um, my wife has gone through some really, really challenging medical issues, very severe. And so we actually had to move down here Uh, some months back uh, where she has some of her doctors and experts and the things that she's going through. So uh, I actually reside here now, which is amazing and beautiful, but I have to apologize to you. I moved here and then all of a sudden it started raining every single week. So (laughs) Please forgive me. I think that I cursed this area. Um, I love the sun and the ocean. Uh, I lived in Hawaii before. I got to direct a Bible college there. And uh, I was so excited to be here in the sun. uh, And all of a sudden, it felt like Oregon every single day. So I think that's all of my fault. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. There's this amazing verse in uh, Genesis chapter three that I wanna draw your attention to tonight, but first, once you get there, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for this night. What a special church, what a special place, God. It is quite remarkable what you're doing here. I pray, Lord, for every single person here tonight that you would encourage them. It is not by coincidence that we are here in this place. And so I pray that we would open up our hearts and our minds to hear your voice and that you would speak directly into our soul exactly what we need to hear tonight. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. We thank you for this place in your name. And everyone said, amen. Loneliness is a major problem that people are facing in America today. In fact, a study came out mid-2018 that said that about 50% of Americans would describe themselves as struggling with loneliness. Let me read to you a few uh, of the responses that came out of this study. 54% of respondents said that they feel like no one actually knows them well. 56% 56% of the people said that people they surround themselves around are not necessarily with them, a disconnect. And approximately 40% said they lacked companionship, their relationships were not meaningful, and they felt isolated from other people. In addition to that, the survey found that younger Americans were hit harder by loneliness. The generation born between the mid-1990s and early 2000s, Gen Z, is coming to age now and feels lonely the most, researchers found. Those respondents had an average loneliness score of 48.3 compared to the average score for all Americans of 44. Millennials, meanwhile, scored 45.3. So Gen Z and millennials are the most lonely generations in America today. What's fascinating about this to me is that we live in the most connected time in human history. We have more opportunity to connect with people, conversate, keep up with people's lives than any time in human history. We have the telephone. You can make a phone call. Although when people call me, it kind of feels awkward and invasive now. Just text me, right? Like you didn't plan the phone call, so. We have the phone, we have text messaging, we have email, we have social media. You can DM people, you can tweet at people, uh, you can FaceTime people. Never before in human history have we been able to be this connected to one another. And in a digital age that has brought us all together over all of these platforms, people are feeling lonelier than ever. It's as though... People are connected, but their soul is hollow. It's empty. It feels detached from real, meaningful relationships. Now, there's many contributing factors to this epidemic in America, but I want to hone in on one essential factor today, and as a preface, I would say this. Oftentimes, when we find these issues, uh, oftentimes in our life, we treat the symptom, not actually the root, And so I would like to lay a foundation, which I believe is at the root level of this issue of not finding meaning in relationships and not having contentment in our soul. I suggest that our deepest need in life is to be with God, to know God, to be known by God, to love God, to be loved by God. And in a digitally connected world, we are often far too busy to be with God. I find that to be true, and likely you do as well. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. This is actually a fascinating verse, beautiful picture of what God intended. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here is God And the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden. Some of you are like, what's the garden, right? Let me answer that. Great question. The garden was God's original design and intention for humanity. It was a place of perfection and harmony and symmetry. Everything was just as God intended it to be. And here we see a picture of God's intention in the garden. Here God comes down, and the first humans heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now, the term sound there in the original language of the Old Testament Hebrew is a term kol, and it means voice. They heard the voice of God in the middle of the day, in the cool of the day, in the garden, And notice that phrase, the cool of the day. The term cool comes from the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit or wind. It's the same term used for the spirit of God in Genesis chapter 1 and and then elsewhere in the Old Testament. And so God's presence is meeting with human beings in this place of perfection, and I, I just imagine as God comes down and he meets with Adam and Eve, they hear his voice. And they're in this place of perfection, this place of ultimate harmony. The sun is always out. It's never raining like Oregon or California. The flowers are in perfect bloom. The trees are as green as They are an organ. The water is crystal clear, incredible. This place was utter perfection, and God comes and he says, Adam, how are you doing today? What have you been up to? Not that God didn't know because God knows everything, but God is interacting with human beings. This is a beautiful picture of the intimacy and connection that God had with the first human beings. A few building blocks as we are looking at this and thinking about this. Look with me back at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Genesis 1 verse 1. Genesis is falling out of my Bible, so if it blows away, I'll I'll, I'll go grab it. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first essential component of creation is God himself. God is there before anything is created and he speaks things into existence. Then, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the two essential building blocks of God's creation are God. He's the main storyline, main character, and then human beings. And God created human beings to be with him. You were created to be with God. You were designed to be in a relationship of harmony and intimacy with God, your creator himself. Again, to be known by him, to be loved by him, and to know him, and to love him. But notice the second part of chapter 3, verse 8. Here they are, hearing the voice of God in this beautiful place. And then the second part of verse 8 says, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. You're like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like perfection. You're right. Adam and Eve, previously in chapter 3, chose to do what God said not to do. They chose to wander away from God's design and this perfect place that he said, everything is yours, but one thing don't do. And guess what they did? They did the one thing God said not to do. And now for the first time in their existence, they feel guilt and shame. There's a detachment, there's a fracture of a relationship, a brokenness between them and God. And so what did they do out of their guilt and shame? They thought they could hide from God amongst the trees. If you study guilt and shame, you would know that they're quite a strong motivator. And what guilt and shame do in our lives, they cause us to run, hide, and cover When we feel guilty, we decide, you know what, like, I can't be around those types of people, or I can't come to church, or I can't talk to God, because I need to hide from God. I need to hide from God's people. I need to cover up whatever shame I'm feeling. The first humans did that. They thought the answer was hiding from God, so they looked around the trees and they said, you know what, we're going to make ourselves a covering to cover our own uh, uh, sin and shame, verse 7, and then we're going to hide from God because surely God won't see us, but here's the problem, God sees everything. And here's the beautiful thing here in this picture. God comes to them, and God isn't mad at them, God isn't angry. God isn't showing disappointment, although he was definitely disappointed. God comes seeking them out. When they had failed, when they had felt their own nakedness and their own shame and their own guilt, God seeks them out. But Adam and Eve don't understand that nature of God, and so they are quietly walking through the garden in shame and guilt, kind of like when I was in high school. I had a curfew. Anybody else have a curfew in high school? But here's the problem with me. I always broke the curfew. So I would come home late, and we had a couple big dogs, so we had a dog door. So I would jump over the fence. I would crawl through the dog door really quietly, Then I would tiptoe to my room, open my door quietly, close it quietly, and pray, I hope nobody wakes up. Because I was afraid of the consequences and I knew I did something wrong. But here's the thing about God. God doesn't want you to tiptoe away from him, evading him in your shame. God wants to come to you, meet with you, talk to you. Let you know that his presence is still available for you in whatever you're going through. And so we see here in Genesis chapter 3, God's design is fractured. Man was with God, now man is detached from God. Then, turn to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes on the scene. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 with God pursuing man is a foretaste, ultimately, of what Jesus came to do. Matthew chapter 4, we're gonna pick up in verse 18. Where Genesis 3 8 is about God's design being fractured, Matthew chapter 4 is the beginning of the story of Jesus and how God's design is restored in Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is on the scene. He just got baptized, he's beginning his ministry. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God on earth because the king, Jesus, was on earth. And he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. Any of you know the geography of Israel? The Sea of Galilee is in the north. And it's not like the ocean. It's like a big, massive lake. It's beautiful, breathtaking area. Mountains surround the Sea of Galilee. It's this huge lake, and Jesus spent most of his time in the northern part of Israel during his earthly ministry, and he's walking by the sea. And, verse 18, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, So Jesus is hanging out, doing his thing, and he sees these two brothers that he had previously seen before. We know that from John chapter 1. And they were partners in a business together. They were fishermen they were casting their nets day in and day out. And in Christianity, I've heard a lot of like jokes about fishermen and like, you know, kind of looking down on the industry in the New Testament times. But actually, fishermen were often very successful businessmen during this time. This was a a, a ripe industry for business and success, and so likely they had a great business. They had plenty of money. They were super successful. So this wasn't just like you know something to leave uh, because it was a hard industry. This was a great industry during this time in the Galilean region. So they come. They had everything. They were successful. They were uh, business partners. They had money. But something was missing, something still, meaning in life, something was missing in their souls. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus flips the script on their life purpose. He says, you know what? You've been fishing for fish, but I want to transform your story and your life, and I want you to fish for human beings. You're making money out of this business in Galilee, but I want you to change the world. Notice their response. Immediately or at once, they left their nets and followed Jesus. Now we see another pair. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. So, in this case, these two individuals, James and John, they were in a family business. It wasn't just brother and brother, it was brother, brother, dad. Successful, awesome career in that part of the world. Jesus walks to them and he says, Hey guys, you follow me too. I want, I want to be your rabbi. I want to be your teacher. I want to lead you. And, and notice their response, verse 22. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, think of this. Like, put it in our own time, our own context. Let's say... You are a part of a family business that is super successful. You love what you do. It's your dream job. Jesus walks into your office and he's like, Today, leave everything all your money, all your, you know, comfortableness, and everything that is good and successful in your life and follow me. I would have to think about that. Like, This isn't just like, oh, you know, like how easy for them to leave everything. This is a big deal. This is a major decision and commitment that they're making. And Jesus calls them to do it, and they at once or immediately left that scene and context of life and followed Jesus. I suggest to you, something was missing in their soul, and they knew it. You know, we can have all the success in the world We can have all the money, cars, things, job, everything, and still be empty in our soul. We can have a lot of connection and a lot of people around us, as is uh, the case in our age, in our digital age, and still be hollow in our soul. And that's where Jesus enters in. And that's where Jesus comes in with his presence as he's pursuing us and seeking us out. I want you to notice a few things because this is germane to this whole talk about discipleship and being with Jesus that Benji began last week. I want you to notice a couple of the phrases here. First of all, the phrase, follow me. This comes from a a Greek pair of words that literally means to come after, to come after. I think of my dog, Lucy. I have a five-pound chiweenie, half chihuahua, half dachshund, and then she also has minpin. She's got, she's got tall little legs, and I'm a runner, so she runs with me. She is amazing. Today's her birthday. She turns eight years old. We're going to go. I'm going to go home and throw a party for Lucy. Awesome, huh? So, so Lucy's amazing. Um, but here's the problem. She likes my wife better than me. My wife is 1A. I'm 1B. So every time my wife, Kara, comes home, let's say Kara goes to the coffee shop, she comes home, Lucy gets so happy. She runs the door, she smells, smells her before she even comes to the door. She runs to the door, she starts scratching on the door, and then Kara will come inside and Lucy literally will come after her, follow behind her. She'll be jumping on her calf, licking her leg for five minutes straight. It's amazing. Now, this isn't just like that, but you get the picture. Jesus is saying, I am your savior, I'm your leader. I'm the satisfaction you're looking for. I'm the purpose that you are missing out in life. And I want you to follow after me. Notice again, this this, um, discipleship language, he uses the term follow. And what Jesus is doing here is actually really shocking to this New Testament culture. Because in this culture, disciples did not, or or, pardon me, rabbis did not choose disciples. Disciples chose rabbis. So Jesus comes on the scene. Usually if I was like a disciple and I saw an awesome teacher, I'd be like, I want to learn from you. Jesus comes on the scene. He's like, no, you follow me and learn from me. He is doing groundbreaking work. He is breaking cultural norms and barriers in this setting. And it's quite remarkable. And We know why he did these things. I want you to write a few things down tonight. First of all, if you're a note taker, write this down. If you're not a note taker, maybe consider writing this down. (laughs) First of all, discipleship is the restoration of God's design. What Jesus is doing here, seeking out these guys and seeking out all the men and women he sought out as he lived his life on earth, this is the restoration of what was fractured in Genesis chapter three. This is the beginning of the storyline of redemption where God restores that relationship with human beings that was broken at the fall. Let me explain. What was fractured in Genesis three is beautifully restored in the life Death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to the earth to come and show how awesome he was and do miracles and like surf, you know, on his feet on the Sea of Galilee, like like things nobody's ever seen before. No, Jesus came to do exactly what was broken in Genesis 3. He wants you to be with him. He knows about your humanness He knows all of your imperfections. He knows all of my brokenness. He knows all of my guilt and shame. And he came in a proactive way and he sought out people. He didn't say, you know, you choose me as your rabbi. He said, I choose you. You know what's even more remarkable? If I were Jesus, I would have went to Judea. I would have went to the center and capital of Israel where all the smart, uh, intelligent, uh, schooled people were, the southern part. But no, he went to the northern region where the outcasts lived. He chose people to change the world that no other rabbi would have chosen. He chose the normal people, the outcast people that, that the society would not be mesmerized by. Let me, let me just share a little bit about this idea of being a disciple. Because I think there's a lot of misnomers in Christianity and, uh, false ideas about what it means to be a Christian. The primary um, identity of a Christian is a disciple. In fact, we use the term Christian or believer. Uh, those terms are used, I believe, less than a handful of times in the New Testament. The term disciple is used hundreds of times to describe our identity in the New Testament. The term disciple comes from a Greek term, mothetes, and it has two overarching meanings. Number one, it means learner. Number two, it means follower. To be more exact, uh, the first idea is one who engages in learning through the instruction from another. Uh, It can be rendered apprentice or learner. The second idea is one who attaches himself or herself to a spiritual leader, that's what it means to be a follower. So here Jesus is seeking us out. Later on, he'd go to the cross to die for our sins, to forgive us, to restore us back to a relationship with God for all of eternity. He is in process of restoring God's design and he's doing this through discipleship. Now, it's quite interesting how much parallel there is between Genesis 3 and this idea of discipleship. Let me show you uh, a few of the parallels. First of all, in discipleship, we can hear God's voice. We can hear his voice. This is the learner part of disciple. We begin to realize that when we come to Jesus, he speaks to us. We get to learn from him. He's our rabbi, he's our teacher. He's our ultimate professor, so to speak. He knows everything and he knows what's best for our life. And so we sit under him through the teaching of scripture, through the reading of scripture, and we take a posture of learning and we say, Jesus, I'm here to listen to your voice. Speak to my soul. I want to learn from you. You know, uh, when I first started following Jesus as a high school student, I went to this amazing church uh, called Applegate Christian Fellowship in Southern Oregon. And uh, at that point, it was the largest church in Oregon. They had 8,000 people, but it was out in the middle of nowhere. It was quite remarkable uh, work of God. And they said something almost every week that stuck with me. Read your Bible and pray every single day. That's been the foundation of my uh, spiritual practice for years and years now. And there's something beautiful about that because when you open up Scripture and you talk to God, He speaks to you. And in my life, I need it every single day. God wants you to hear his voice. God wants to speak into your soul, whatever you're going through, wherever a place you are in life, just like in the garden where the first humans heard the sound of the voice of God. So too today, God wants you to hear his voice. Second observation, we can be with him. That's the follower idea. Like God intended in the garden, that Himself and us would be in harmony and connection with one another. This is what God does in discipleship He calls us to a life of being with Him, following Him on the way. I love uh, New Testament Christianity because they used other descriptions for Christianity. Christianity wasn't used till later on in the early church, the way was used. That's, how, that's what Christian says. We're part of the way. We follow Jesus on the way. It's a way of life. We are disciples following the way, Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful description of what it means to follow Jesus. And so we get to be with him. We get to be with him every day just as God intended. That's the following aspect. In addition to that, we follow Jesus for life. You know, there's, again, there's a lot of cliches in Christianity that I think my generation uh, is trying to deconstruct and then construct a right idea. This idea that you believe in Jesus just to be saved for eternity, like, that's only a piece of the pie. You don't come to Jesus just to say, I want to go to heaven. You come to Jesus so that he can not only save you for that, but save you here and now and be with you here and now and change your life here and now. If he wanted all of us in heaven, we would be there immediately. But he has a plan for our life on earth. And so salvation isn't just save me so I can go to heaven. Salvation isn't just save me to forgive my sins uh, so I can go to heaven. Salvation is a reconciliation to a life with Jesus on this earth and all into eternity. It's not just a point in time where I'm like, I'm a Christian, that's all that matters, I made a decision, no, it's I'm a Christian and now there's this linear life I live following Jesus every single day where he's making something out of my life that was broken, where I had shame and I was hiding from God, he sought me out, he loves me, he's transforming me and now I get to follow him for all of my life. Now there's different facets of life, right? So number four, we follow Jesus in the mountain peaks of life. There's this awesome story. Let's turn there. You know, we don't have a time limit at night, like the morning. That's why you guys come. That's why you guys come to the night gathering, right? Matthew chapter 17, turn there. This is such an awesome, this is like the mountain peaks of life here. Jesus had circles of relationships just like we do. His closest circle was Peter, James, and John, and he would take them to do things like, you know, nobody else would get to do. It's like, there's this Christian man, and uh, he's a a billionaire, and um, my good friend is friends with him, and... One day I get a phone call, hey, you guys want to go to Hawaii on his private jet, and all expenses paid for a week, and I'm like, yeah, like, this is amazing. Well, this scene is better than that, and we went to Hawaii on this private jet, it was like incredible. Um, All expenses paid. So this is even better than that. Jesus is like, yeah, you're in my inner circle. Come on my private jet up to this mountain, and I'm going to show you some really cool things. Verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took him, Peter, and James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter always was speaking out of turn. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Can you imagine being these three guys? They go up to this mountain. This is Jesus' inner circle. And he's like, watch this, guys. And all of a sudden, Jesus is in his glorious state, his heavenly state. And Moses and Elijah come down, two of the greatest guys in biblical history. And Peter's like, let's just stay here forever. And then the voice of God comes and says, God the Father speaks and says, this is my son. Listen to him. This was like a triumph. This is like one of those all-time joys in life, that the things you experience and never forget, and you tell the story over and over and over. And in our lives, Jesus is with us on these mountain peaks. Jesus is with us in the triumphs and joys of life. But, but, write this down, Jesus is also with us in the storms of life. We don't just follow Jesus for life on the mountain peaks, we also follow Jesus in the storms of life when things are hard. In Matthew chapter eight, verses 23 through 27, there's another story on the same lake that we read about. This time, it's not Jesus calling his disciples, this time, they're in a storm. And when he got into the boat, verse 23, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was taking a nap. Now, if you know anything about the geography of this sea, if wind comes down a certain part of one of the mountains that surrounds the sea, huge waves result. Six to seven feet. I mean, that's pretty large, right? Any surfers in here? Yeah? Um, I lived in Hawaii. North Shore Hawaii gets much larger waves than that. But these are pretty big waves. And sometimes people would die because the storm would come in so quickly, violently, and literally envelop the boat. They would drown. It gets really dark and, and, and cloudy, kind of, in this area when there's a storm. And so, uh, this is the scene. They are afraid for their lives, and Jesus is hitting the snooze button. He is asleep, he's exhausted. So, they say to Jesus, they woke him up, saying, verse 25. Save us, Lord. We are dying. And he said to them, I can just imagine just the calmness of his voice. Why are you afraid? Oh, you little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Can you imagine this? They think they're about to die. Because we have storms in our life. We have tragic events. We have losses. We have medical issues. We get depressed. We have anxiety. We go through all kinds of storms in life. How many of you were taught when you come to Jesus that life's going to be perfect? Everything's going to be flawless. You know, like uh, when you come to Jesus, everything is going to be fully changed and redeemed instantaneously, and nothing will be hard. Like, Is that your experience? No. There's all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of despair and and times of life where we feel like the waves of pressure and stress and suffering are overtaking us. And in my spirit, I just wonder tonight how many people are feeling like that. I wonder tonight how many people have come here and you're heavy and you're burdened and you feel like you're drowning and the waves are overtaking you and you're in a storm in life and you're depressed and there's all of this consternation in your soul and you don't know what to do and there's a hollowness and emptiness and you've come here tonight. And I believe that Jesus would say to you, come to me because I am with you during the darkest days of your life. I am with you when you're depressed and in despair and have anxiety and stressed and have no answers. I love you, I'm seeking you out, I want to be with you. That is the type of God I am. You see, sometimes we wonder where God is. We think he's snoozing and taking a nap, but the reality is he's right there by our side. 2018 was the hardest year of my life. My, my wife has faced more severe, life-changing medical issues than any person I've ever met our age. We've been heartbroken, depressed, depressed, discouraged. We've had to reorient the entirety of our life. But every day, God has spoken into my heart, given me hope, encouraged me for the future, and continues to give us purpose along the way. You see, because my God isn't just there for me in the triumphs of life, My God and your God, he's there for us in the valleys and the darkest seasons of life. And he speaks into our soul when we meet him and he gives us hope. Will you be with him tonight? Will you know that he wants to be with you? He wants to transform your soul. He wants to take the hollowness that you're feeling and fill it up. Not that you don't need relationships, not that you don't need community, but this is at the root level of utmost importance. God is truly the satisfier of our soul. And he wants to be your God and be with you tonight. Jesus, I pray. I pray for people in here. Just as you said, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light, and in me you will find rest for your soul. In a world of digital distraction, in a world of ultimate connection, we still are empty apart from you, God. I pray that we would know that the best life, the most satisfying life, is a life of learning from and following and simply being with you because of what your son did for us, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for us to forgive all of our guilt and shame, washes it away, gives us a brand new start and a brand new chapter in our story. But he also died for us so that we could be reconnected to him and we could live our life being with him just as God intended. I pray for those of you here tonight that do not know Jesus, have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, that you would believe in him today and that your story would be transformed, and that your heart would be filled with his love and his grace and his goodness and his presence. Touch every person in here, Lord. Encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.